This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So recently I was reading a, a book by Maria von Tropp. So yes, the sound of music, Maria von Tropp. Um, Catholic family from Europe, and she wrote a book all about the traditions that their family does through the liturgical calendar. So it's an interesting uh, way to read what other people do at different liturgical seasons, not only in the Catholic Church, but also in another part of the world and at another generation. And so she was talking about the season of Epiphany being a time where people would get together for dances and, and social events um, often. And, and so it was much more a season of, of feasting than even we're accustomed to. And on the last three days of Epiphany, you're gathering for parties, you're eating all the sugar you can eat, and then the final Tuesday night before Ash Wednesday, you're dancing, you're, you're at a party, and up to the stroke of midnight, when the clock strikes 12, the musicians abruptly stop, all the partners stop, and they face each other, and they say, have a blessed Lent, and they go out in silence. And then Lent begins. And she, she talks in this book how important it is that we have seasons of feasting and that we have seasons of fasting. She compares it to breathing in and out. We can't only breathe in. We can't only breathe out. We need to breathe in and out. So there are seasons for celebration. And there are seasons for testing, seasons for fasting and feasting. And of course, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, we're saying, well, of course, our, our whole life could not be a feast. When we look at the world around us and we still see so much that is wrong, how could we feast our whole lives long? That would be wrong. And yet, on the other hand, the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Paul says, rejoice again, I will say, rejoice. And so we, we see, too, that if our whole life is mourning and fasting, then we'll be overcome by despair. And so we need both. And if you're accustomed to thinking of Lent as, oh, isn't that cute, some people give up chocolate, let me invite you into a deeper, more profound reality, a spiritual reality that is this season. Having been here at this church now for almost 15 years, I, I've seen it in others. I've experienced it myself. In fact, I can remember a specific time where a very distinct journey of sanctification, of testing that the Lord had for me began right on Ash Wednesday. So it was my first year of being a youth pastor. I was only a, a couple years out of school. And I had sent out an email, and in that I, I was careless with my con communication, and I, I had offended some parents, hurt their feelings, uh, justly so. Um, sorry, just that they were hurt in their feelings, not that I had hurt them. <sighs> <laughs> I almost did it again, because they're all out there. These people, they know what I'm talking about. So I had done them wrong, and in this, I'd also actually wronged my staff team as well. Don't need to get into all the details of how that I could possibly do that, but that's what happened. And so Stuart said, let's have a talk uh, next Wednesday morning. Happened to be Ash Wednesday. So there I am after the 7 a.m. Ash Wednesday service in the ministry center, sitting in the office in the hot seat. And I think my only consolation, if it was any at all, was Steve or somebody before I go in saying, we've all been there. <laughs> and to his credit, let me just say this. I've never felt more humbled and, and in a godly way humiliated and loved at the same time. 
Without going into all the details of that meeting, I left there, and then God began a very distinct journey that 2009 Lent. Where after that meeting and that humiliation, I, I went from there, and then a few days later, I was reading in Proverbs. So this journey was definitely propelled forward by the Word of God, as it always is. But I'm there reading in Proverbs, and the proverb that says, The way of a fool is right in his eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. That one just jumped off the page and hit me square between the eyes. And I realized that in this first year of having my first job in ministry, I was 24, and I thought I knew everything. And I would secretly judge and critique and look down on, on others who were doing things differently, and even, even the staff team that I was a part of thinking I knew better. And this was the Lord's wake-up call. You've got a lot to learn. And I realized, okay, uh, actually church work, like any other job, it's a skill set. I've got to learn it. And here I've got amazing people all around me, these practitioners of ministry that I, I can learn from and I, and I need to. And that deep humbling was not only that season of Lent, but many years um, after that. So again, because I've been at this church long enough now, I, I know, without knowing, I know that there are some of you, perhaps many of you, who've had something happen even in this last week or, or, or recently that has been a wake-up call for you, or somehow it's clear that you are now in a crucible season. There's a test that has been placed in your lap. It has just come your way. So today we're going to talk about how God tests us and how he tests, tested Jesus. And when the test comes, we're to accept the test first, and then second, beyond that, we're to discern the lesson. Okay, God, what are you doing in this test? So not only do I accept it, but now show me something. What's the sanctification, the holiness that you're working in me? So if you're open to your Bibles, Matthew chapter 4, God tests us. Look at verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that word tempted can alternatively be translated tested. And I actually think that's really helpful because here we have clearly the devil is tempting and he's trying to get Jesus to sin. He wants Jesus to fall into evil. That's the devil's goal. James, in his letter, is really clear. God never tempts us. In other words, God never desires that we would fall into evil He's not leaning us in, pulling us in, hoping that we'll fall. Yet at the same time, look, what does it say? It is the Spirit who is leading Jesus into the wilderness for this purpose of being tempted by the devil. And so what for the devil is a temptation is for the Lord a test. He is testing Jesus. So not only is it clear in this passage that God tests us, we also see the whole uh, witness of, of Scripture Abraham was tested. Job was tested. And interestingly enough, Satan had a hand in that too. Joseph was tested. He was given a vision and a promise from God and then spent years as a slave and then more in a dungeon. And God was saying, will you hold on to me? Will you still cling to me in faith until I raise you up and you see the fulfillment of the promise that I gave to you? And Joseph passed the test. Abraham passed the test. Job passed the test. God tests us. And even Jesus' first quote, his response to the devil's first temptation, is a quote from a chapter 
all about testings. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you are in this season, this crucible season, then I, I give Deuteronomy 8 to you as perhaps a chapter to meditate on throughout Lent. But let me read just a few verses for you. Moses is speaking to the congregation. He says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers had known, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, or every command. So word and command means the same thing. God commanded the bread from heaven. So even they were eating, so to speak, they were eating the commands of God. And it was the command of God for the bread to fall that gave them life. And of course, telling them bigger than that, it's God's command and his desire and, and by the gift of his sovereignty and providence that we have our life at all. That you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on, on your feet. Sorry, your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Know that as the father disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. He tests you to know what is in your heart. I tested you, he said to the people of Israel. I humbled you. That may seem negative, but actually it's an invitation to a closer relationship with God. Every test is a chance to say yes to God. You have loved me with an everlasting love. What's the little that I could do for you in, in return? I'm in a test? Oh, I want to prove faithful. Test me. What happened to Jesus right before our story? Right before the temptation, he was baptized, and the voice of the Father from the heaven said, I'm filling you now with my love and my blessing. This is my son, my beloved. I love him. I love him. And the test of Jesus in the desert was his chance to say, and I love you. So another way to think about testing, it's, it's also a way to say, Put me in the game, coach. Put me in the game, coach. I want to play. I don't want to just stand on the sidelines and watch others. I want to be transformed. I want to become more like you. So when I was a kid, I played basketball. And for a couple years, I was on a team where everybody else was better than me. It was a little bit out of my league. And I did not like being put into the game. I played a few minutes, and they were always a terror because I felt like a fool, and I would screw up. or just I just knew I wasn't one of the best players out there. I stuck with it, and a few years later, when I was a sophomore in high school, I had my breakout year. I was a starter on the team. Now, before you get too impressed, it was the JV squad, okay? But I was a starter, and I played most of the minutes of the game. I was one of the better players on that JV squad, and that year I had a lot of fun playing basketball. And I remember sitting on the bench to, to get a rest, which was needed, but as soon as I was rested, I felt ready to get back in. I wanted to be on the court. Put me in the game, coach. I want to play. I don't want to just sit on the sideline. So testing is a way for us to say, I want to be transformed. I want to say yes to you. I know it won't be easy, but I know it'll be worth it in the end. Last week, we talked a lot about this when we said that we are bearing the cross through Lent and through this, this journey upcoming. But there's more than simply accepting the tests that come. 
There's more than just simply accepting the idea that God tests us, although for some of you that, that is the main work still to be done, just to accept the idea God is still loving, He's still on my side, He still will do good to me, but part of that included in that is He's, he's testing me. Some of you, that is what you need to take away from today. Um, but beyond that, beyond simply accepting this test, there's more. True transformation comes when we not only accept our tests, but then we further seek to discern, God, what are you up to? What are you showing me? What are you working on? What are you wanting to change in me? Remember, yes, it was Satan who was saying the words of the temptation, but behind Satan's temptations, we can see God is up to something. Because remember, he's, he's the initiator of all of this. So in a minute, we'll, we'll turn to those and we'll see behind Satan's words, what is God's invitation to Jesus. But for us, let's just remain in this idea right now that when we're under the test, in the time of testing, for true transformation, let's go to that deeper level of being willing to listen and discern. And once we discover, ah, we identify, here's what you're doing in me, then we can embrace it. And then the journey of transformation can actually be multiplied and quickened. So, so Stuart actually didn't say anything about you know, me needing to be humbled and, and, and that I was a cocky young buck needing to be put in my place. That, that wasn't part of that conversation. But coming away from that conversation, recognizing I was in a season of, of, a, of a testing season, it was that further work and that first from Proverbs and the continual work that I don't even remember now, but that whole Lent, just that one profound lesson of do not be wise in your own eyes. Learn, grow, be humble. It was all throughout that season. And once I recognized it and identified it, it was easier to actually get excited about it and to see the reward at the end. So along with accepting the test, more than simply enduring and just waiting till it's over, we're actually seeking to discover God's purposes and hear his voice in it. All right, so now let's look to the three temptations of Jesus and how is it that, well, the devil is doing one thing, but God is actually doing something else behind it. So the first temptation, Jesus is fasting. This is verse 2. He's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. Might be a bit of an understatement there, but there it is. He was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, or could also be translated, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then Jesus responds with the quote from Deuteronomy. So he's hungry. The devil comes and says, eat bread. And at first glance, I don't know about you, but I look at this and I think, what's the sin in that? What would be the sin if Jesus ate? He was a hungry man. What's wrong with a hungry man eating bread? Is it simply just that, well, the devil suggested it, and we don't want to listen to the devil? As I, I do remember, we were talking to the, to the kids once about obedience and how important it is. You have to learn to obey mommy and daddy because someday we won't be around and you need to obey God and your conscience. And Caroline said, yes, but we can disobey Satan because we need somebody to disobey. <laughs> Just got to get that disobedience energy out of me. Got to go somewhere. And I just said, yes, Caroline, you disobey that, that stinking devil. 
So is it just that Jesus shouldn't do what the devil said? Like, why is it a sin for him to eat bread when he's hungry? For here, it's helpful to understand this idea of recapitulation. Recapitulation is that Jesus, in becoming human, is actually going through the series of tests and temptations. He's living the human life, and where Adam fell and where Israel fell, where we all went wrong at every fork in the road, where we chose the wrong way, at every fork in the road, Jesus is going to choose the right way. Whereas we will from time to time say no to God and yes to temptation, Jesus in his recapitulation, part of him redeeming humanity is that when he could have said yes to temptation and sin, he always said no to that and yes to God. And so Matthew in his gospel takes extra pains to uh, root the story of Jesus in the story of Israel and draw the parallel. So the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew parallels the birth narrative of Moses. Both were tried, they were sought to be killed by an evil tyrant, and they had to be hidden. Um, and then in chapter 215, out of Egypt I called my son when Jesus came back out of Egypt. Originally that prophecy referred to Israel, but now Matthew's saying it refers to Jesus. All this to say, Matthew is saying, Jesus is the true Israel. Where Israel failed, Jesus got it right. And as Paul wrote in Romans 5, Jesus is also the true Adam, the true human. Where Adam, and through the disobedience of one, death came to all, as Paul said in Romans, now through the obedience of one man, life comes to all. This is recapitulation. And so here we are in the desert. Remember when Moses was saying, look back on our journey. You hungered in the wilderness, and God was testing you. He was humbling you to see what was in your heart. Well, now we know that at some point, manna fell every day they were in the wilderness. So they actually were not hungry most of the time. What is he talking about? Moses is actually talking about that first moment precisely when they come through the Red Sea. So what happened? They come through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's and his army is dead, and they're on the other side, and they're safe from Pharaoh, but what do they have in front of them? A desert, no food. And now they've got a sea behind them, and unless God's going to do a miracle again, they, they can't get back to Egypt where there's food. So great that we're safe from Pharaoh, but now what? And in that place of being in the desert, it says they grumbled against God and they said, you've brought us in the desert to die. You've abandoned us. You clearly do not love us. You're not able to take care of us or you just simply choose not to. And now we are stuck and we're going to die here in the wilderness. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can understand why they felt that way. Here I am in the desert, all these thousands of people, no food. What are we going to do? We can understand that. But God was looking for something more. He was looking for the kind of faith that would say, all right, you saved us from Egypt with mighty works displayed by your hand, the 10 plagues. You brought us out and then through the Red Sea, which is an astonishing miracle of power, you saved us from Pharaoh. Now we're here in the desert and I don't know how you're gonna do it, but I know you're gonna do it. I don't know where the food's gonna come from, but I know you're gonna take care of us because that's who you are. That would have been extraordinary for Israel to have gotten to that place. But that is what God was looking for, and they failed. And now Jesus is at the exact same point. He comes through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but the waters of the Jordan, and he finds himself in a desert place. And after 40 days of not eating, he's hungry. 
And the devil is saying to him, God has abandoned you, and you're going to die of hunger here in the desert. But hey, since you're the son of God, you can do something about that. Turn these stones into bread. But God, behind that, had an invitation for Jesus. He said, Will you trust me, my son? Will you trust me and wait for me to give you what you need? I will give you what you need. It comes from me. I will give it to you. Will you wait for me? The temptation for Jesus was to take matters into his own hands. But in order to be faithful to his mission and true to being fully human, he had to fully rely on his father, even for his daily needs. All, all throughout his life, and also and especially now in the desert. So part of Jesus being fully human was that when he got hungry, he couldn't just say, poof, I, I want a piece of bread, or poof, I want a steak dinner, or this. He couldn't use his power to serve himself. And actually, in studying this passage, I, I realized something I'd never realized before. It seems kind of obvious, but do you know that Jesus never used his power to serve himself? He always used his power to serve others. He never did a miracle to serve himself, or even in this case when we would say, hey, that seems sensible. Take care of yourself. Self-care, Jesus. Even then, he says no. Because if he had, he would have forfeited his mission. If he had, he would have cheated. And he would have done what none of us could have done in that moment. And by doing that, he would have removed himself from his mission of becoming just like us so that he could redeem us. Not to mention, he was saying, you know what? My father has promised he would take care of me, and I don't know when my next meal is going to come from. And in this desert, I, I honestly don't see where it's going to come from. But I know that it will come. In the end of the story, the angels come and they minister to him. His faith was rewarded. But he had to wait for it, just like you and me. And so God's question to Jesus, will you trust me, Jesus, and wait for me to give you what you need? That's the same question he has for you in the time of testing. Will you trust in me, even and especially in the time of testing? Will you trust that I will give you what you need? And also, will you let me tell you what you need? Will you let me tell you what you need and then provide it? Second temptation, verse 5. The devil took him up to the top of the temple and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up so that your foot will not strike a stone. But Jesus said, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So I look at this, and kind of like with the first one, where it's like, what's the sin? Like, obviously, jumping off a temple is a sin, and, and worshiping Satan is a sin. So the second and third ones, those are clearly sin. What's, what's the sin in the first one? Here in the second one, the question for me is, what's the temptation? Whenever I'm up in a high place looking down from a precipice, it is not tempting or enticing in any way to want to jump off into the abyss. So we could wonder, what is he being tempted to do? Here's the answer. Jesus is being tempted, similar to the first test, to trust in himself, but especially in his own spiritual resources, in his own faith. So he responded to the devil, the first temptation, no, I, I trust in God. I, 
I trust in him for what I need. And the devil responds and says, oh, okay, so you trust God, do you? You have faith in God, do you? Prove it. Prove that you have the kind of faith that could leap off this building and trust that his promises in Psalm 91 will come true, that'll catch you up. And if you don't jump, I'm not so sure that you have that kind of faith. He was tempting Jesus to display spiritual impressiveness. But behind this, God was saying to Jesus, will you trust me? Again, it's a question of trust. Will you trust in me to vindicate you and raise you up in my way and in my time? And the time would certainly come for that true and ultimate trust fall when Jesus on the cross would be staring down into the real abyss, the abyss, the chasm of death. And there, as a fully human, he would have to trust that though he would die, his father would raise him back again to life. He had to exercise that faith the same way that you will when you close your eyes and breathe your last. God will raise me up again. That would be the time for the true test and the ultimate trust fall. So Jesus, in this moment, says, no, I'm not going to manipulate God. I'm the one being tested. I'm not going to test him. Now, the first temptation, many have connected it to bodily temptation. So Jesus is hungry. The devil says, why don't you eat something? And there are some who are prone to what are called sensual sins, sins of the body, sexual sin, abuse of alcohol or other substances, or any other sins that are related to the body and, and what are also called the passions, those appetites, those urges. And for that, God has a specifically engineered test for you, probably will involve physical fasting, by the way. That's really important for breaking habitual sin and sexual sin is regularly fasting. But God is saying in that, will you trust me that I will give you what you need and don't look to these other sensual sins. So in the second temptation, however, there are others who may not be as tempted by sensual sins. They're more tempted by spiritual sins, things like the need to vindicate myself, to prove my worthiness to God or to myself or to others. This perfectionistic drive that often lacks discernment. This can lead to self-righteousness, a looking down on others for their struggles, especially, oh, you people who struggle with sexual sin, I look down on you. Or you people who can't seem to get your relationship to alcohol together, I look down on you. It also is manifested in a critical spirit, a judgmental, I just criticize everybody in my mind. And at the end of the day, it's spiritual pride, which is the most deadly sin of all. So with his second temptation, God is saying, will you trust me to be the one to vindicate you and raise you up, that you don't have to prove your spiritual impressiveness? Third temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all of this I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone you shall serve. In this third test, a couple interesting notes. So Luke's gospel, 
tells us that the devil says, I will give you the kingdoms of the world and their glory and their authority, for it is mine to give. And Jesus does not dispute that fact. So when God created the world, and then he created mankind on the sixth day as the pinnacle of his creation, he gave the whole world into our care. He gave us dominion. But when we sinned, we actually gave that dominion to the devil. But the devil knows that ultimately God is still ruler overall, and part of Jesus' mission is to come back precisely to reclaim the glory and the authority and the power of all the kingdoms of the earth. And so the devil's trying to last-ditch effort keep that from happening by actually tempting him with that very same thing. Now, why is that a temptation for Jesus if he knows he's going to get it in the end? Well, Satan's offering it without the cross. Because at the end of the gospel, when Jesus does in fact say, now all authority in heaven on earth is given to me, he says that on the other side of the cross in his suffering, doesn't he? So here's the devil saying, all those things that you're after, I will give it to you in a shortcut kind of way without the cross, without the suffering. That's the temptation for Jesus in it. And he says, be gone. And it reminds us of when Peter was trying to say, no, Jesus, you're not going to suffer. That's not the kind of Messiah you're going to be. And Jesus says some of the most startling words in the whole gospel. Get behind me, Satan. Be gone, Satan, he says in the temptation. To Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because both of them in those moments are trying to tempt Jesus away from the cross. And as we talked about at length last week, we know that that is not possible. That Jesus is a suffering Messiah and his mission is through the cross. But the devil is always offering a shortcut. Even in the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Isn't it interesting that at the end he says, you will be like God. If you eat this, you'll be like God. So eat this fruit. I find that interesting because what does the New Testament tell us? We will be like God. We will be like Jesus. And that is actually the goal of all the transformation journey that we're on. As we said last week, the glory of the transfiguration they saw on the mount was their own future glory that they would participate in. They would be like God. So the devil is offering Adam and Eve the same thing that God will eventually. But what's the key difference? Shortcut. My way. And in this test, God is saying to Jesus and he's saying to all of us, will you choose my way even though the way is longer and it will be harder? So in whatever testing you're in right now or the next time a significant crucible season of testing is laid upon your lap, let's remember the example of our Lord Jesus. Let us remember that God, while he loves us, and actually because he loves us and is good, is one who tests us. So let's accept the tests. And then further, let's look and discern for what is the lesson, what is the work that God is doing, the transforming, sanctifying work that he is doing in each test. And let me conclude with these hopeful words from the epistle of James. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.